November 8th, 2022, we met Miss Anna Krishnitskaya in the Ann Arbor Public Library. It was election day. Ann Arbor Public Library was full of voters casting ballots for all the issues and concerns in their minds. Inflation, abortion rights, student debt, you name it. On the other side of the globe, in Ukraine, November 8th was another day in war. Fierce fighting continued in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. President Zelensky declared not to surrender a single centimeter of land, and four million Ukraine people lost power on that cold winter evening. Half a year ago, in the same room, we interviewed Melania, a Huron student who came from Ukraine. During the hour-long conversation, Melania told us a lot about her experience in Ukraine and what she knew about the war. The heaviness of the conversation stunned us. We were saddened, puzzled, and somehow haunted by the cruelty of the war's reality. We were eager to seek a second voice, a different perspective, to talk about this war, because so much we didn't know about this war, the land, and people from both sides. Luckily, we found the right person to talk to. Ms. Kushonitskaya, she's a writer, translator, and scholar on Soviet topics. We were honored that Ms. Kushonitskaya accepted our interview invitation. So to give some context to this conversation, uh, could you tell us about like yourself, such as where you're from? I was born in 1975 on the island of Sakhalin that is in the Pacific Ocean, very close to Japan. It was the Soviet Union at the time. And uh, why did you come to, the, or when did you come to the States? I came to the States when I was almost 30. Um, I, I married an American. I had a baby with an American, and eventually his um, work visa in Russia ran out. We lived in Russia for four years before that together. And uh, it was my turn to be the foreigner. And so I came here um, with the uh, understanding we had, we had an agreement that if I hate it here, well, we're going to give it two years. I have to give it two honest years. And if I hate it here, then we are going to look into maybe moving back to Russia or living in Europe or some such. And I actually did not hate it here. So here I am. And we know that you're like a bilingual writer in both Russian and English. So can you tell us a little bit more about your work? Um, well, it is not my main occupation. I have not always been good at it. Um, I guess I write whatever comes to mind and they <laughs> don't always seek publication um, or monetary remuneration or fame for it. It's just a thing that is fine for, fun for my brain to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually it just came to encompass poetry in English and in Russian and essays. I like to do essays. Um, fiction is fun. Is there something that like you find yourself often writing about? There are things that I want to write about and never have the time to. I have begun several projects which I always think I'm gonna finish when I retire. There are topics that interest me socially, but there are also like everyday things, people's feelings, thoughts. Um, I like the way um, people's minds work, or I guess I should amend myself. I don't like the way people's minds work. I'm interested in the way people's minds work. 
And so I would say I write about that or things related to that pretty frequently. And what do you find about the mind that's interesting? How faulty it is. We got to know Ms. Khrushchevskaya through a book, Cold War Casual. When we tried to find some resources about Ukraine and Russia's history, Cold War Casual attracted our attention. It's not a history book about the Cold War, but a bilingual interview collection of lived stories and testimonies by regular citizens from both sides of the Iron Curtain. People talked about their lives, the propaganda they experienced, their perspectives and misunderstandings towards their rivals, and their fears and hopes while living through that frightening time. We found all of them to be very much relevant to what is going on today, and our conversation with Miss Krushnetskaya started there. Um, so we got a chance to know more about you through your book Cold War Casual. So, what was your motivation and inspiration to write Cold War Casual? When you start living sort of binationally, biculturally, people ask you things. People ask you questions. People have presumptions about the other culture. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're maybe a little bit right, mostly wrong. And then you have to give this qualified answer. They will ask you something about China in your case or Russia in my case, and they will say, "Isn't it true that such and such is true for the entire nation?" Or, "Isn't this true that this is how your mindset works?" Or, "Isn't this true that your family is always like that, or structured like this, or has these rules?" And then you will find yourself unable to give a short and pithy answer, because what people are asking about are actually involved, layered, complicated topics. And so you give them a qualified answer, and you bore them, and they walk away, or you say it depends, and they think you're just opting out of the conversation, and you can't really tell them that it really does depend. It really does differ. And so when I I was living in the U.S. before that, before I lived in the U.S., I actually taught、um, in Russia. I taught English at an、um, American studies department, and the questions were kind of reversed then. When my Russian students would ask me about the U.S.,、uh, U.S. teachers would come and teach, you know, freshmen, sophomore, whatever, English and. The Russian students had a lot of questions and presumptions and mistruths and wrongies that they had in their heads about the U.S. And so you would have to broker, I guess, the U.S. culture to the Russian students, the Russian kids. And then I came here, and a bit of a reverse process occurs. You, ha- I have to broker. I don't have to, but I'm asked to, and I, of course, can sometimes rudely say just. Stop asking me. I don't want to talk about this. But you have to broker Russian facts, Soviet facts,、um, you know, thoughts, mindsets to the U.S. culture, and so、I'll, I found that a lot of the misunderstanding or the bad feelings, I guess, were rooted in the Cold War conflict. And I thought I'm going to make a book that does not push forward the theory. That does not give clear-cut answers, but instead it just gives people's life stories, so that people、um, 
who may have never lived in the U.S. or have never lived in the Soviet Union or do not speak Russian or do not speak English could still gain some exposure. Look at other people's stories and see their humanity and their own humanity and how it really does depend. It really does differ. It really is complicated. And your book like brought up a lot of stories from like both sides of the um, Iron Curtain. And I think a main topic that you mentioned was propaganda and how because of propaganda, the two sides, they knew very little of each other. Um, so what was your experience with propaganda going up in the Soviet Union? Soviet Union and did you experience propaganda as well? Well, uh, to talk about my experience in the Soviet Union, we have to know my vintage. Okay, so Cold War begins in the 50s and ends in 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. That's the um, accepted chronology. So we need to know where I come in there. I was not alive in the 50s or in the 60s. I was born in 1975, so let's say I gained consciousness, I don't know, 1982. Um, and at that time, the Cold War was actually in full swing. There were, um, you know, periods where things got better and things got worse and things got better and things got worse again. And in the 80s, things got worse again when um, Reagan was elected president. Uh, and he was a hawk. He had a hawkish platform. Um, he um, ramped up. Well, not he, him single-handedly. Again, this is an oversimplification and every oversimplification is wrong. The government, the Republican government at the time... The, the everyday people's moods, um, they were all toward the demonization of the Soviet Union. The same thing was occurring in the Soviet Union. So when I'm like seven, eight, nine, the threat of an actual nuclear event is actually high. And it is ramped up more by the propaganda. And in the Soviet Union, the United States, in the United States, the Soviet Union are painted as demons. They are, they are painted as um, the aggressor, the, the enemy, the, the bad humans. We're the good humans, they're the bad humans. And so that's a pretty scary thing um, to hear, to see when you're an elementary school student. I remember we were, we would walk home from classes and I'm like, ah, nine. And this group of nine-year-olds just walks home from school and they're talking about a nuclear attack and how it's going to go and what they're going to do. And the girls are like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. And the boys are like, nah, we have the weapons. We're going to win. We're going to be bigger. We're going to be stronger. So uh, I guess as children, we were aware of the international conflict. We were told that Americans are horrible. Uh, we were told that they are the threat, that they're out to kill us, we're the peace-loving people. Uh, we promote peace in the world. And then, as a teen, I went through this period where this propaganda was dismantled. Different facts about the Soviet Union, about Russia, about the Russian people, the Soviet people. The Soviet government sort of came to light, and that, that period is known as the Perestroika. Um, this is from about 1986 till about 1989. And as a teen, that's a very exci exciting time to be. It's the things you're learning about the world are revolutionary, and they coincide with this revolution within yourself. 
because as a teen, you have to review things, overthrow things, um, disagree with things. And so I would say the political life of the Soviet Union and the attending propaganda, and then the, the dissipation of the propaganda did have an effect on me as a child. And so another major thing that was kind of mentioned uh, in your book was, you know, America's fear of the Soviet Union. And, you know, most of this fear was caused through, like, propaganda and the stereotypes of Russian people. But, like, after these Americans got to know these Soviets in person, they were much more, like, human and normal. So do you think these stereotypes still exist between Russians and Americans today? Um, I'm going to say yes. Um, possibly more on the Russian side than the U.S. side. And the presence of stereotypes um, is affected by several factors about the enemy. First, um, you have to believe that this other side is an enemy. That alone is going to color your further perception of them. Second, lack of exposure, lack of access, um, lack of a common language. And, well, of course, the, the government efforts... Um, to instill certain messages messages in the minds of the citizenry um, also play their part. And I'm going to say that the government of Russia um, in the past decades um, really, really did work hard to, and not just the government, you know, those ideas, they, they trickle down, to use the trickle down metaphor, to the culture, um, to everything, to stand-up comedy, to films. Um, and then eventually, if that's the, that's the informational space that you live in, you do begin to believe that Americans are dumb, that Americans are, um, they have no sense of humor, they are filled with greed, they are um, only interested in themselves, they are narrow-minded, they are only focused on the U.S., they only care about the U.S. And I think actually the grain of truth in the latter statement that Americans are focused on the U.S., that they do generally care about the U.S., that it makes them less suspicious of Russians, just because they haven't given them that much thought. Some thought, but not an overwhelming amount. But at the same time, Russians were taught to give Americans the NATO, and then in the new lingo of Russia's president, the Anglo-Saxons who have not been alive in many centuries, by the way. This is like ancient history. A lot of thought. A lot of thought to their evil ways, um, to the way they are trying to destroy family. They're trying to destroy Russia. They want Russia weak. They want Russia on its knees. So Russians do think about America a lot more than Americans think about Russia. There's one trend in the book. When you ask American responders... Did your family care about politics? They will overwhelmingly respond with an answer that mentions U.S. politics. U.S. domestic politics, policy, Republicans, Democrats, elections, uh, presidential races, um, everything that happens within the U.S. And if you ask Soviet respondents, did your family care about politics? They understand politics to be something that the Department of the Exterior does. World politics, international politics, geopolitics. 
the place of the Soviet Union in the world and its exterior external enemies. So the very idea of what politics is in your mind is shaped by where you are, when you are, the messages around you. And when you were a child uh, living in Russia, would you say that you and those around you were very aware of the political tensions between the Western countries and Russia? Well, I can't know what other people were thinking because I was not in their minds. Um, I can tell that these conversations did not get a lot of airtime in my family. Those are the grown-ups I did have daily access to. Um, many responders actually say that on the Soviet side, that the political tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States were mostly in the realm of the newspapers, the radio, the TV, but not a subject of domestic conversation. Which does not mean that the sediment did not settle in the brains. Maybe people did not discuss how vile America was in the kitchen over dinner with dad. But at the same time, if you grabbed somebody in the street and said, is America vile? Is the U.S. vile? They would say, oh, yeah, because that's something they see in their newspaper and their television. Um, so you mentioned that as a kid, like you were always taught in school, like America was bad. Like, young children in Russia still taught the same type of propaganda, or has it changed over time? Um, it ebbed, and it flowed. And then it ebbed, and it flowed. I do not live in Russia now. I think right now we're at peak, at peak anti-American propaganda. And this is just like of two months ago. There's new classes in ideological education being introduced um, in schools where previously there was no formal discipline like that. But now there is, by federal law. All school teachers are supposed to talk to kids about how bad the NATO is, how the collective West is out to destroy Russia, how we must hold on to our values, our spirit, our soul, our past glorious history, our achievements, our glorious language, and not let the collective West pick it apart and bury it under radioactive ash. So right now it is really, really bad, but it hasn't been this bad in the early 2000s or in like 2010. It does change with time. Um, so in your book, one of the people you interviewed, a Russian man described Ukraine as the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, in the keynotes that you said, you said the Ukraine was part of like a Soviet territory. Mm -hmm. And so do people still address the country of Ukraine as the Ukraine? Yes um, and no. Um, there's many people. The population of Russia is millions and millions of people. Um, the, um, I guess the Ukraine is a fact of the English language. The fact of the Russian language is um, the debate of whether you say na Ukraini or v Ukraini. So it's a different preposition. We don't have articles. Ukraine, or some parts of Ukraine, was at various times in European history, part or parts of different empire or empires. This is how most Europe works. Nobody just created themselves as a little teeny, teeny tiny, tidy nation state in the third century, and this is how they sat forever. As people who have ties to China, you know the history of China. You know how the territories of China 
changed. The rulers changed, you know, the how you got Inner Mongolia, how you got Tibet, all of those things. Ukraine as a place was in the Polish-Lithuanian kingdom. It was, parts of it were in the Austrian-Hungarian kingdom. Parts of it were, at some point, parts of the Russian Empire. It has a complicated history. Um, it's a lot of intermingled peoples. All of Europe is like that. And so people who like to pointedly say, now Ukraini, in the Ukraine, they are referring to their cognitive habit of thinking as of thinking of Ukraine as part or parcel of the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire, or just a place that they used to thinking of as something that is part theirs. And people who say в Украине, in Ukraine, they actually had to train themselves out of that habit. And when you say that, again, when you consciously say that, you say it to illustrate that you understand that Ukraine is a separate country. And the preposition that is used for countries is now also used for Ukraine. It is not the preposition that you used for the territories of your own country. It's the preposition that you use for a separate country. And of course, a lot of people will say, now Ukraini, commonly translated in the Ukraine, just out of habit, just because they've, that they've always said it this way. It's it's a language quirk. It's not an ideology quirk. And then they correct themselves. They slip back. They slip forth. They. It's it's a it's a training um, in language that we undergo when ideas change. And some people have trained themselves, and some people have not trained themselves, and some people purposely do not train themselves to say the new thing. That's it. And what about the relationship between Russia and Ukraine? And like, sort of, what did you experience when you were in Russia? What time period are we talking? Um, well, maybe, like, did you notice any sort of tensions while you were in Russia, even before the current war has started? Or Again, what year? Is it, are we talking 1980, 1990, 2000, 2005, 2010, 2014? I'm 47. I've lived a long life. We need to pinpoint <laughs> a stretch in it maybe, for me to answer better. Maybe right before you moved to the U.S. No. No? No. Um, I moved in 2004. Um, and there were no specific tensions. I mean, there were um, government displeasures between the governments of Russia and the governments of Ukraine um, at various points. But there was no, beyond maybe the ever-present low-grade in some people, not in most people, sentiments that people have about different ethnicities. There are just tiny everyday bigotry. Uh, just, you know, how people have things to say about the Jewish people. Sometimes they say, oh, they're greedy. Or um, they have things to say about, I don't know, the Chinese people. They are, they don't have friends. They only have allies. They will not speak the truth in your... They will say nice things to you, but they will conceal their true intentions. Something like that. And so I'm guessing that some Ukrainians had some 
uncomplimentary everyday beliefs held about Russians as the Rus- as the nation as the ethnicity and vice versa uh, Russians about Ukrainians but there was no way that these two peoples considered themselves or considered each other the enemy and so oh yes uh, when did the people really sensed the war was really gonna happen for real I don't think many of us sensed it at all we did not oh my gosh this war is a catastrophe. It is a man-made catastrophe. It absolutely did not need to happen. There was no objective reason for it to happen at all. And now that we've stepped in it, there's no stepping out of it. All the catastrophes that are happening will happen. This is the nature of war. It is majorly decivilizing. You open the door, you fall into the pit. You're now in the pit. This is your life. I would say, Most people who see the world as a rather reasonable, if complicated and contradictory place, did not see this war coming. I'm, spe- I'm speaking about myself, I'm speaking about my friends, my vast network of acquaintances. When the army, when the Russian troops were gathered um, in February along the Ukrainian border, most of us thought that this was just posturing. We were actually absolutely stunned, speechless, by the war. We are Maya, Zach, and this person I met. Thanks for listening. What you just heard today is the first half of the interview with Mrs. Kushu Nisikeo. In the next episode, Ms. Kushunitskaya will talk more about what she knew about the war and her reflection on what it means to Ukrainians, Russians, and people like you and me. Stay tuned. Somebody could come up to me right now and say, Russia sucks. And I would say, I know where you're coming from. It doesn't cut me to the core. This is one of the things that is bad about war. It doesn't give us time to sit down and ponder and investigate and analyze. War brings us back to just being the biological species. Things that have to survive and feed and be warm and be safe and run and hide and fight and bite and fight and fight and bite, 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 bite. The itchy and scratchy show. That's what war is.